Hey, it's Jamie West here on the podcast. On uh, today's podcast, uh, we'll talk about Hamilton construction uh, going up by 30%. Glenn Norton will be here, the Director of Economic Development. More good news for the city of Hamilton. See, I get all choked up about good news in our city. Also on the show today, 6 million people hacked in that uh, Capital One financial breach. David Masson will be here uh, to tell us how to avoid the pitfalls of being hacked, as much as we can anyway. Also, you heard about that mother's rant on Facebook about Disney? Well, we've got an expert to talk about that and make you feel all better about that. And selfie takers, hey, there's a great local lavender farm out in Milton that's just saying, could you be a little more considerate and not crush all my plants when you come take a selfie? We're happy to have you here, but just be cool, will you? All that coming up on the podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Some more good news. Apparently, Hamilton uh, construction has increased by 30% in the first six months of this year. And the the magic question is, or the $64,000 question is, uh, why has it increased? Glenn Norton is with us. He's the Director of Economic Development with the City of Hamilton. Glenn, good to have you back. Thanks, Jamie. Happy to be here. 30% jump in the first six months uh, of this year. Uh, What's going on out there, Glenn? Well, um, a, a lot of things. There's no one single factor, uh, Jamie. So first of all, we have to understand that the GTA and the whole southwestern Ontario economy is doing well. We're not, we're not suffering um, out here. There's a lot of growth for a lot of reasons. The first segment that is significantly growing is housing. If you look at our, our building report stats, over 65% of the dollar value of the permits that we've issued are for housing. Because I think you can tell by the price of housing in this area that there's a shortage of it. So new apartments, condominiums, single-family homes, and renovations to all of those are happening at a, at a pretty substantial rate. So that's kind of the first part of it. Right. And, and part, oh, sorry, mm-hmm. go, go ahead, continue. No, that's okay. I was just going to say the second part of it is that we're seeing increased demand for industrial and commercial uh, construction as well. The vacancy rate in our industrial properties had fallen well below 2% over the last couple of years. And so that's a rate where in order to, to keep business growing, people are having to build new buildings or add on to their existing buildings. And, and Hamilton is a, a growingly popular place to not just live, but to, to do business. So we're seeing growth in that aspect as well. All of this construction, what, what does it do to uh, to the tax base, uh, uh, Glenn, because traditionally Hamilton has, you know, leaned very, very heavily on the residential taxpayers to raise the money it needs to run the city, while, you know, the industrial uh, b- and businesses have, have not been here. Are, are we going to see somewhat of a rebalancing of that as a result of, of I don't know, we call this a construction uh, boom? Is this the beginning yeah. of something like that? Well, that, that's a great question, and, and I'm going to have to tell you that the answer depends on how you want to look at the statistic. Do you want to look at it as a percentage of the taxes that are paid by residential versus industrial, or do you want to look at the pure dollars? Because the residential is growing so fast, and as I said, 65% of our building permits and more are going to housing, as a percentage, it's probably not going to change. But in actual dollars the increased commercial and industrial activity we're seeing should help to keep any increases for the residential taxpayers down because industrial and commercial taxes are, are much higher than they are for the residential um, folks on a, on a per-property basis, so that helps you. But if you just looked at the statistic, you know, whatever percentage comes from residential versus industrial commercial, hard to get that 
percentage to change when the residential component is growing so fast. As I uh, drive around and observe uh, the the construction sites that are going on in our city and <clears throat> have for quite a while, um, first of all, it's it's nice to see as a lifelong Hamiltonian. I I'd love to see this happening. It's it's really great to see. But the other thing I I look at, I think. Wow, they're they're putting up all the, the, these condos and so on and so forth. What do these developers know that the rest of us r- really don't know? Because p- people that are in business to develop lands and build things, they're not in the business to lose money. So they must know things that we don't know. And if that's the case, where do they get all that information that allows them to make the decisions to uh, plan a condominium uh, in a certain place? Yeah, and Jamie, I don't know that they know anything that we don't. I think as a lifelong resident, just as you said, you know that Hamilton is a great place to live, great place to raise a family. Uh, I know that, and I think anybody that you ask that's here would say that. And I think the developers are learning. And and by the way, most of these developers you see building are local developers, so they understand that. They, They get it, and they see people from surrounding areas who are saying, you know, listen, I'm being priced out of the market that I'm in, usually, you know, from Burlington and heading eastwards, um, Hamilton, wow, you're a real city. You've got a, uh, you know, a nice waterfront. Your downtown is redeveloping. I think that might be where I choose to settle and raise my family and, and look for a job in Hamilton or you know, commute into uh, a nearby city. So um, I think they're just following the market. They, you know, developers will go where there is demand. They will build where they know they can sell units. And, and um, if you compare it to Toronto... We're not growing at that rate, but we're growing at a very good and steady rate that, you know, I, I hope will continue, and I don't see any reason why it won't continue into the future. Right, and and the other thing that, that I've observed is um, that, you know, when it comes to condo uh, development and, and, you know, selling condo units and so on and so forth, developers have a, have a really good market in that you've got an aging population of people who want to downsize from their you know, fully detached homes in other areas of the of the city. They're three-bedroom, four-bedroom homes, et cetera. They want to downsize. But you've also got a new generation of younger folks who don't place the same value on having that single detached home that traditionally many of us had. And, and they're much happier to live in smaller spaces and they seem to be more focused on lifestyle and experiences as opposed to having things, uh, including bigger houses. And, and that bodes well, too, doesn't it, for, yeah. uh, for you if you're a developer in this market? And, and you've summed it up very well, Jamie, in terms of where the two parts of the condo market are. So I'm in that first group you talked about. You know, my wife and I are empty nesters. We sold our big home in Mount Hope. We moved downtown to a much smaller condo. Um, it, it let us sort of downsize our financial expenses as we get closer to retirement. It also lets us walk to the things that we like to do. I mean, right. I can walk to City Hall from where I live. I can walk to Theatre Aquarius and the things that I like to frequent. So the other end of that spectrum is, just as you said, a lot of the younger folks who yet haven't formed a family and haven't, uh, don't have children are finding that a smaller space in a condominium is both affordable and suits their lifestyle. What you don't see, and I'm in a pretty new building downtown, you know, the acclimation building, what you don't see in there are families. You don't see a lot of children. Mm -hmm. Uh, You see very, very few, to be honest with you. And uh, the pattern that I have seen over the last, well, five years I've been in different condos downtown 
is that when a young couple ends up having a child, by the time they have the second child, they're very ready to move out, and, and they look for the single-family home or something like a townhouse where there is a little bit of grass and, and place for the child to play. So sure. It, it, we need all types in Hamilton, I guess is what I'm trying to say, and I think we're seeing uh, growth in all types, and uh, we'd like to see more. We want there to be choice for people of where they want to live and the type of lifestyle they want to have, and uh, we want it to be affordable for them. Yeah, and I think, uh, too, that geographically, Hamilton is almost, uh, I would say this with, you know, bias granted, that, that Hamilton is really like the perfect city in Canada in which to come to and build a life um, because you can have a, an urban existence if you want, like the one you d- described downtown. Um, I, I still can't believe that anybody in Hamilton still thinks, oh, downtown, that's terrible. Like, they, if that's the case, they haven't been downtown for a long time because downtown is rocking. It's the best it's ever been. <laughs> but But you've also got... You know, if you want to call it suburbia, it's really not. You just go go up onto the mountain, and you've got all of that up up there, and you've got the west, and you've got the green space, and everything's like seven minutes away. Like it's yeah. it's it's this city is just the perfect place. Depending on whatever whatever stage of life you're in, this is the place to do it. And the developments themselves, Glenn, the the aesthetics of what they're building, and I'm thinking downtown, you mentioned the acclimation uh, project, gorgeous uh, development. The Connaught, has the Connaught ever looked any better in its entire history than it does right now? Yeah, absolutely. Great, great points, Jamie. You know, I'm thinking I should have you in the marketing department over here because you've done a really good job. Well, call me after and we'll talk. Uh, All right. Fair enough. enough. No, but 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 really, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right, and people are discovering that Hamilton is an authentic and real city. We have an older area, you know, the aging of buildings. We have an authentic downtown. Um, we have the the work ethic, the grittiness. We are an authentic city. We are who we say we are, and it is having an appeal. And um, you know, I'm I'm pleased to to be here at this point in time uh, in my life. And I chose to move here in 1991, and I'm certainly. Uh, not regretting that decision, and and hopefully others aren't. You know the other the other piece, and it's a little off. It's a little off the topic of the thirty percent increase in in construction, but we've we've kind of covered that. But but when you get Glenn Norton on the air, you've got to ask about some other things too. And <laughs> and since you admitted that you live uh, downtown on, on James uh, James Street, you know one of the observations I've made recently is, of course, I love James Street and King William, and I love everything that's gone on down there you know, around the Lister block redevelopment and then all these entrepreneurial businesses coming in and artists and so on and so forth. It's all great. But one of the things I noticed is they kind of, we're still in the point in time where we're rolling the sidewalks up on James street at like nine o'clock at night. Um, it's, it's hard to find a, a, a restaurant and there are many fantastic restaurants along James street. Um, you, you, you know, them all, but a lot of them are closing at nine o'clock, and I'm wondering: is that because you know people don't people aren't coming, or is it because they're not open? It's that old catch twenty two thing. You ever talk to businesses along James Street and and get any sense of that? Because um, I would love to see that all kind of stay alive till at least eleven o'clock or midnight every night. Yeah, and I'm a bit surprised to hear that you're finding that uh, that none of them are are open. I know that uh, some are, but a lot aren't. Yeah, so it, it would be driven by their market. Some of them are, are more geared towards a, a family market, and I can see why they might be closing earlier. 
those who are sort of the um, place where you go as a, as a young person or go on a date, uh, those are staying open later. Um, and, and, of course, the mix of businesses in the downtown changes over time. And James North itself is going through a, a change. We don't have nearly as many of those artist galleries on there that we used to. And I'm not sure that's a great thing. Um, I would prefer to see them back, but... You know, the reality is they are moving to other parts of the area, those mm-hmm. that are, are surviving, and, and a gallery is a tough go in this city, quite frankly. Um, we're great at producing art. We're not so good at consuming it. Right. So it, it is changing over. A lot more restaurants, as you noticed, where there might have been previously a gallery. You'd probably now see a restaurant or a bar. Uh, and there's more coming. There's probably, I'm aware of at least three that are under construction on James Street North. Great. This so is... it does change the, the tenor, but, you know, I worry a bit about if you have too many restaurants and bars, um, how does that help the general retailer? Because the um, busyness period, if you will, for restaurant and bars is, you know, sometimes starting after 5 o'clock. Um, you need people on the street for the general merchants to, to benefit from as well. So I, no matter where the area is, anywhere in the city, I like to see a balanced growth of general merchandise, uh, fashion, personal services, and restaurants and bars. So yeah, there's a just makes sense. people on the street at all times. Well, and that, if you know, historically uh, speaking, you know this, uh, that's, that's what downtown was like in its heyday when people used to uh, actually dress up a bit to go downtown yeah. on a Saturday and spend the day uh, uh, down there attending those uh, merchants and stopping in at a place uh, for a bite to eat. Uh, and all of that stuff. I mean, I I think I really feel like we're we're almost there. I really do. Yeah, it's great. I I, I I agree with you, Jamie. And I've been at this for ten years now. In fact, this this week makes it uh, ten years that I've been at the city and working to develop not just the downtown, but uh, but all of the city. And I feel like we're getting closer and closer. We're not quite there yet, but we we've consciously tried to sort of balance the the growth in business downtown with the growth in office, the growth in residential, because they all support each other. You yeah. can't just go in and say, I'm going to have a whole bunch of new retail downtown. They would fail if you don't have people in the offices who will shop at uh, noon and people who li- are living downtown who will shop uh, after 5 o'clock. So, you know, and, and you can't build housing without having the retail support to it. We, we had a backlog of people who wanted to build downtown, but until we got a, a grocery store, which turned out to be, uh, you know, Nations, we were we were being accused of having a food desert downtown. Where did you go to get groceries if you lived in a downtown condo? Right. So right. we've been fairly um, prescriptive in how we've approached the redevelopment of the downtown and trying to move on all three of those aspects at the same time. I think it's been uh, reasonably successful, and I'd be the first to acknowledge we're not there yet, but we're going in the right direction, that's for sure. All right, Glenn Norton, Director of Economic Development, City of Hamilton. Uh, Great conversation, as always. Look forward to the next one. Thanks so much for uh, being here today. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Jamie. All right, take care. Bye for now. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have fun, don't we? Except when we're being hacked. You heard uh, Lisa talk about her newscast. It's been all over the news all day. Six million people in Canada affected by a data breach. One of the largest in Canadian history that hit Capital One Financial. And the hacker behind it's been arrested, um, found in his mother's basement. But what does this mean uh, for those affected? Joining us on the line is uh, our expert, uh, David Masson, who's uh, Canada Country Manager for Dark Trace. David, welcome back to the show. Hey, hi there, Jimmy. Nice to speak to you. What's Dark Trace? Explain to everybody what Dark Trace is. 
Okay, we're a cybersecurity company, and what makes us different is we use artificial intelligence to find threat on networks and stop it within seconds. There you go. Wow. Simple and straightforward. Here's the thing. Um, I asked the question, you know, what does this mean for those affected? How the heck do we know if we're if we are affected? Okay, um, if you've been affected in Canada, Capital One is going to get in touch with you and tell you what's happened. Um, so there's probably people getting emails, texts, and maybe phone calls uh, all over Canada right now. But uh, this, is a, this is a real tragedy. I mean, what, it's only three weeks since we heard about what happened at Desjardins Bank in Quebec. 2.7 million Canadians lost everything, all their personal information and their SINs. Now we've got a million Canadians have lost their SINs and another 6 million. And that's a big chunk of the Canadian population. It's a real problem. What are people going to have to do? They're going to have to really pay attention to their credit cards and their bank statements and keep an eye on things just to make sure that they don't spot anything weird happening there. Right, and we understand why hackers go after financial outfits. It's it's obvious why they do because that's, you know, that ties them to the money somehow. That's where the um, money is, yep. But the I think what a lot of people don't understand is is why these financial outfits aren't Teflon or aren't solid with their security. Yeah. I guess it's not, um, is it not, is it just simply not possible, uh, David? No, to it's be- not. Okay. No, it's not. No, cybersecurity, cyber is not going to be solvable. You can make it safer, but you're probably never going to be able to make it completely safe. And in this case, it's a, it's a wake-up call for everyone to realize that big organizations that have money, that have people, and they have technology to protect themselves, they're not invulnerable, as we've seen here, and they can still be hacked. Um, and that's just that's pretty much just the way it's going to be. So it's going to be a continual game of cat and mouse. And, and uh, I mean, I guess the objective for large organizations like Capital One would be to enlist the services of, of people that are computer people or, that are smarter than the hacker that's trying to get in. And how do you do that? Where do you find these people? Well, that's pretty much what it is. Um, it's, a, it's a cyber war, if you like. Um, good guys versus the bad guys. Mm. And sometimes the good guys have the advantage. Sometimes the bad guys have the advantage. Actually, pretty much of the time, it's the bad guys have the advantage because they decide when and where they're going to attack. And then the good guys, we have to um, uh, react to it. Um, what uh, organizations like this often have to deal with, they're big, huge, and they've got lots of resource. A big issue for them, all of them, is visibility on the networks. Things are now so complex, it's just difficult to see what you've got and where is it and what is it doing. Um, in this case, we're talking millions and millions of records managed to leave a network and nobody noticed until the individual, apparently who's taken it, allegedly, then told people about what she'd actually done. And a lot of people probably struggle with that, so how can nobody notice it? But it is a problem for organizations, actually having the visibility into the networks to see what's actually going on. So with all of that data being taken, and, and this isn't the first time we've talked about this type of thing, go, these things nope. go on from time to time, um, but we, we don't usually hear about people saying, oh, my bank account's been drained, oh, this has happened, that's happened. We, we don't typically hear about that. Are, are the people that do the hacking, are, are a lot of them people that just do it for the sake of saying they could do it, or are they really up to no good and they want to take the information and they want to rob people. It's a mixture of both. It's a mixture of both. Sometimes it's nation states. Sometimes it's big organized criminal gangs. Sometimes it's hacktivists who are trying to make a point. Sometimes it's terrorists. Sometimes it's people who are just out for for um, for thrills. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, in this case, the individual, based on what the report we've seen, doesn't 
we're not really sure what the motive has been for the individual doing this, but there's always a reason. We just don't know what it is now. But it's usually a combination of all those things. Um, but what people do need to understand, although it doesn't look as though anybody's credit cards have been accessed and used, all that information that's been taken in many ways in the modern world, you've got to look upon your personal information as a currency, a currency that can be bought and sold by other people. And that's often why it's taken. Yeah, um, I guess uh, the, the other thing is, you know, we talked about uh, social insurance numbers. Um, that's, that is, I think, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, a, a bit of a bigger deal than just grabbing a credit card number because that's your whole identity, right? Yeah, yep. Um, they're very sacred. They're sacred in Canada, sacred in the States. I'm originally from Britain. They're called national insurance numbers. Mm. They're absolutely sacred. It's the, it's the number you get usually when you're somewhere between 16 and 18 and you have it for the rest of your life because it's you. And in this occasion, it looks like a million of them have, been, have walked off the network. Not entirely sure where they've gone or what they've been used for, but they've left the place they were meant to be with Desjardins. I think it was 2.7 uh, or 2.6 million. And people will be very, very worried about it. Um, with the Desjardins uh, incident, people were talking about maybe we can get new SINs. You know, and I guess maybe you could. That would be a hell of an undertaking to do. But the problem is, even if you get a new one, you've still got your old one. You're still right. eternally tied to that old SIN. You don't just suddenly magically turn into a different person. You can't do that. Even if you get a new one, you've still got the old one. Yeah, yeah. And and, and there it is. I mean, I guess the the, the risk of, is that it's going to muddy things up. I know that in, in the past, uh, when I've gone to... You know, if I've bought or sold property and, you know, I've got mortgage documents to sign and this kind of thing, m- many times I've been asked to, you know, sign swear affidavits that I'm not this particular individual or that particular individual, even though the names are, are the same. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a pretty simple thing. But my guess is that more often than not with these types of breaches, it's muddying up our lives. That's the, the big risk rather than losing all our money. Um, yeah, pretty much. Um if you're like me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an old guy now. Uh, somebody steals my identity. And, you know, for all I know, maybe somebody has. And I just don't know it yet. Yeah. In, in some ways, this is going to sound awful. You know, it's only going to be an issue for me for, you know, a couple more decades. But if you're 21 just starting out in life, you've got your rest of your life to uh, consider this. Yeah. And, and so what, can pe- what, what are the, you know, the top three things that we need to do to protect ourselves? It just seems like we can't. <laughs> you know what 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 do we need to do what do we what is the average guy sitting at his computer uh, doing a bit of online shopping or whatever what do we need to know what do we need to do okay there's 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 a few um uh, basic steps that people can do that will certainly improve their their security and in many ways um in the way that we've all learned to drive cars and we've all learned to do other social norms you're going to have to start thinking about what they call cyber hygiene is just one of the facts of life the birds and the bees story and do these things and some of the obvious ones are, one, if you get an email with a strange-looking link in it and you don't know where it came from, don't click on the link. Right. Okay? One, let's do that, okay? okay? Let's not go, hey, I wonder, I wonder what that's all about. No, let's <laughs> delete the damn thing, okay? Second one, stop using the same password for everything, particularly if you're using that password for your financial uh, transactions. Stop doing that and make those passwords strong. I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm somewhere right now and I can actually see what one of the passwords is, and it's ridiculously simple. Okay, so let's make some nice strong passwords and stop using the same password for everything that we do. 
Another one to consider is everybody's on social media now and it's various forms. Just consider what it is you're telling the whole big bad world outside about yourself. Mm. Just give it some thought, okay? And check your settings on your social media accounts to make sure you're not giving more away than you actually thought you were. Because bad guys can access that and they use it to try and pretend that they're you. Um, two more ones you want to consider is if you're using public available Wi-Fi, and there's lots of it everywhere, you know that's great, but it's not safe. Don't use it for anything to do with finance. Don't be using the Wi-Fi available in your shopping center to pay off your credit card bill because people uh-huh. can see what you're doing, okay? Great advice. And one fu- and one final one, everybody's got lots of internet-connected things around their homes now, be it the TV, the coffee machine, the fridge, the little gizmo that opens and shuts the curtains or turns the furnace on or, or off or whatever. They all, have, they all have default passwords. So when you get one of those straight out of the box, change the default password because the bad guys know those default passwords. They're, very, they're all available in the dark web for use. So if you've got one of those, go home tonight and change them. No kidding. See, that's huge. I think people hearing that will be, uh, I think a bunch of ears just perked up uh, out there listening to the program to hear that. We just don't think about these things. We think that, you know, once we're inside our doors of our home, that we're safe. But we forget that we're totally connected to the outside world via these things, these gadgets. Yeah. Well, you're in a connected, you're in a net connected fridge. You're probably using it so you can, I don't know, from miles away on your mobile phone, make it cooler or whatever you want yeah. to do. But because it's on the internet, it means it could be connecting to pretty much anywhere. Yeah, I remember simpler times, uh, uh, David, when when uh, they used to warn you about your garage door opener with an infrared oh, right. yeah, beam yeah. and, and yep. the, the crooks would get these openers and they would go around and try them in different places and eventually different doors would open up and they could rob your garage. Um, things have become a little more sophisticated since then. They have just a bit, haven't they? They have. Uh, David, always uh, always a pleasure to, to chat with you and thanks for uh, some good information today that we can uh, take with us and, and use uh, right away. Um, uh, I know we'll be talking to you again because this won't be the last time this happens, but we uh, we do appreciate your expertise. Thanks so much. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There's uh, David Masson, uh, Canada Country Manager for uh, Dark Trace. They're uh, the cyber experts. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You may have heard about this crazy uh, rant from uh, a tired mother who uh, went on social media and said that childless millennials should be banned from Disney World. I can't even read this post that she put out because it's just it's just loaded with things. It, uh, it upsets me, which is not the word, to no end, it says, when I see, and it's full of capitalized words, just like Trump, when I see childless couples uh, without at Disney World. Um, Disney World is a family amusement park, yet these immature millennials throw away their money on useless crap. They have no idea the joy and happiness it is to mothers who buy their babies treats and toys. They will never experience the exhaustion that it is to chase a three-year-old around and getting stares at assuming I'm a bad mother, four exclamation marks, all in capitals. Whoa, there's some nasty stuff here that I can't say. Um, this person in some questionable shorts was buying a Mickey pretzel and Aiden wanted one, but the line was very long. So I said later, and it broke his poor little heart and he cried. 
I wanted to take that blanking pretzel from that blank like, thanks, blank. You made my son cry. Disney World is for children, five exclamation marks. People without children need to be banned, four exclamation marks. Mothers with children should be allowed to skip all the lines, four exclamation marks, then in all caps. And I'm being slow and careful for a reason here reading this. It's not that I'm, you know, grade one reader. This is, I'm being very careful. You have no blanking idea what it's like to have to stand in line for three hours with a cranky, tired, exhausted toddler, four exclamation marks. And I can't just tell him that we can't do something because it's his vacation too, four exclamation marks. I blanking hate childless women with a burning passion, four exclamation marks. Wow, somebody isn't getting enough sleep, I don't think. So the question is, do you think she has a point? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. And bring your Disney, we only got a few minutes to do this, but bring your Disney World horror stories to the table. A lot of people have been to Disney World and it hasn't been the happiest place on earth for them. It, it Or it's been the happiest place on earth for them for a couple of hours and then for an hour it wasn't. And then for a couple more hours it was. And then for two hours it wasn't again. Because that's reality. So bring your Disney World hiccup or horror stories to the table, will you? 905-645-3221, star 999. Just play along. You know, I know it's Disney and we... You know, but just bring me your Disney hiccup or horror stories. All right, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Marie uh, Radiseo is a Hamilton travel agent with Pure Magic Vacations. Marie, thanks for being on the show today. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for having me. See, you even sound like a Disney person. You sound like one of the <laughs> Disney princesses. Right now, I'm picturing you uh, looking like Ariel or Snow White or something sitting at your desk. Well, my hair is brown, so let's <laughs> go with Snow White. <laughs> So how long dancing along to the <laughs> intro music? So, <laughs> first, first of all, how long have you been in the in the Disney uh, travel business? Like specifically Disney? I think this is a cool thing, by the way. Um, I've been doing this since 2011. Okay, all right. Um, what do you think about this woman's social media rant? Are we giving it too much attention? Is it getting too much attention? Um. It's definitely getting too much attention. Clearly, this woman was having a very bad day. <laughs> she should never have taken to social media, mm-hmm. but she did. Um, so we, I think if everyone just ignores it, hopefully it goes away. And I'm sure it will. I think most people are, are laughing it off. But it, yeah. it, but it, it, it's, it's talking about millennials, and, and millennials get criticized a, a lot. Yes. Um, but I, I've said uh, in other forums at other times that if you want to blame a millennial, blame the parent of a millennial because some of, some of the millennials just weren't given the tools to go out in life and do things. But why should anybody, I mean anybody, be excluded from attending Disney World? Why should anybody feel bad about going at any age? Isn't that what Disney World's all about? Well, that's exactly why Disney was created. It was intentionally created as a place for everyone to enjoy, regardless of their age or status or anything. Um, so no one should be excluded from that. 
Yeah, and I mean, Mickey himself was born in 1928. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, Mickey's right up there, right? He is. He <laughs> is. Yeah. And there's lots of um, elderly that attend without children, without grandchildren, without anyone. It's just them. And they enjoy it so much. And why shouldn't they? I think this woman is just, like you say, under a lot of pressure and a lot of stress. And I suspect that. A lot of parents who take their kids to Disney World feel some some pressure to have it all be wonderful from the entire moment you leave the front door to the moment you come home. And I think maybe we put unrealistic expectations on ourselves and then it leads to some people having these, you know, meltdowns uh, of sorts. We got to keep it real, right? Um, that's why you're in the business that you're in. I, I suppose you help people strategize their, their Disney vacation and manage those expectations. Is that correct? That's exactly what I do. So what do and you, what do you advise all... people to do? What do you advise them to do? So best thing they can do, contact an agent at Pure Magic Vacations. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So they take all the stress out. So planning ahead is key. You have to plan ahead. Um, you can't just go and expect to have everything at your fingertips exactly when you want, how you want. Um, you have to do a little bit of work ahead of time. Okay, because you don't want to just show up there with no plan because you'll get eaten alive by the crowds, the size of the place, the amount of the number of things you want to see, and so on and so forth, right? Well, you won't get eaten alive. You just won't fit in as much as you want, as you can. Right. Yeah. And and so. Is, and, and so do you, when you book a, a holiday with people through your company, do you set up an actual itinerary, an actual plan? Do you sit down with people and say, okay, what are the, what are the priority things that you really want to see and do at Disney? And do you set up like a, an actual sort of map? Yeah, so we actually sit down with everyone, or maybe not sit down, maybe it's email and phone calls, because not everyone is in Hamilton, um, it's all over the place. So, but we do, you know, have set up some sort of a meeting with everyone, um, and go over exactly what they want out of their vacation, because it is their vacation, so we customize it to what they want. Um, and then at the end, we do give a customized itinerary for each person, each family. Um, and then they use that as a guide um, to go off of so that they sort of have a plan. But, you know, if they want to change it on the go, then sure they can. But it's a really good, um, it's good to have some sort of plan going in. Sure. What Do people come to you and, and say, I've been to Disney before. I made a bunch of mistakes about the planning of my vacation. That's why I'm here to see you this time. And, and what what are the what's maybe the number one thing that people would be negative about when it comes to Disney or or have concerns about? Um, well, concerns obviously, long lines are a concern. So that's again where planning ahead comes in and booking things like your fast passes for the rides, um, booking reservations for your dinners uh, or any meals that you want for that matter, um, all that kind of stuff. But lines probably are the biggest concern for everyone. And there's really not a whole lot you can do about that. The number of people are the number of people and the lines are the lines. And I think you got to accept that, right? Well, there's, there's ways around it too. Like certain parks are crowd more crowded on different days. So as long as you know, um, 
there's different days to hit parks that are going to work out better for everyone where it's going to be less crowded this day instead of this day or you know there's um extra magic hours for resort guests on this day so you can maximize your time there too right um and then of course the fast passes are a huge help yeah all right uh marie uh, radiceo uh with uh, pure magic vacations thanks for uh, being with us here this afternoon appreciate it no problem thanks for calling take care bye-bye bye-bye all right, 905-645-3221, star 9900. Um, we're going to come back on the other side and talk about you uh, narcissistic selfie takers. And uh, <laughs> I said it tongue-in-cheek. Everybody's doing it. I do it too. Um, but if you got a Disney horror story, we'll get that in too. That's all right. And I've got somebody on the line who worked at Disney. i got to get this in. Caroline, thanks for holding on. Hi. So you worked at Disney. I did. I did the international program uh, at the Canadian Pavilion a, a few years back. I won't really state the, the, how long ago it was. Oh, but, yeah, with uh, all the lumberjack stuff yeah. and all that uh, Canadian. Okay. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> were you, were you uh, wearing the lumberjack stuff? What were you doing there? Um, I did. When you worked the outdoor food, foods, yes, it was like the lumberjack outfit. I worked indoor foods in La Salle before <laughs> it was converted over. Uh, so I had a beautiful strawberry shortcake pink dress. That's the best I can explain it. It was uh, turn of the century. <laughs> Wonderful. And and did you see did you see uh, people going nuts like like this woman who made this this rant and rave uh, on social media? What did you see? Uh, I think you always see crazy stuff. I mean, some people, um, definitely some groups out there, were more interesting than others, and just I think it's a cultural difference sometimes. But I think in the case of this lady, I think she's just. Uh, she's out of place to be saying something like this. Who do you think is running probably half of that park? Who do you think is there in the international programs, the college programs, running the rides, running? It's the millennials. <laughs> right. That was the age I was when I was there. That's the, those are the years you go when you actually work there. So if millennials aren't allowed in there, who's going to be working? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think she's, she's off base. I mean, even myself, I have girlfriends that I worked at Walt Disney World with that, we still get together and every other year go spend a weekend there. So it's definitely for everybody. Well, isn't it a, you know, it's a cultural phenomenon uh, for people that have been employed there because don't, don't you all go to like Disney university and learn the whole <laughs> Disney thing. And I mean, it, they're the champions of customer service, totally. uh, all of that stuff. Totally. I've definitely taken that, you know, all what I've learned there back with me and, I mean, there's just some funny things that you just can't even get out of your system. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard of the two-finger point. Like, you would never use one finger to point a direction, and that is just right. That, that is just something <laughs> that's inbred in you. And I feel like to this day, too, if I go to one of the parks, I'm always offering to take pictures for people. Just something that you used to do, and you just can't get it out of the system. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Soft yeah. skills. I, I'm glad you called, Caroline. Thanks, Thanks so much, and, and have a great day here you at too. Walt Disney World. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And take small children by the hand. That's what you have to do. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Everybody loves uh, taking selfies. Everybody loves to find interesting uh, backdrops for uh, taking selfies, particularly this time of year when we're outside, out and about. And, uh, you know, one of the places that people like to do this is at a a place called Terra Blue Farm near uh, Milton, uh, where thousands of lavender plants uh, paint the grass in long lines of purple. And they make a, a striking image, one that draws crowds of people who are 
are looking to find a unique location for photographs uh, to post on social media. It's all about the social media merchandising, don't you know? Um, but like all things, people that are that go into these places um, often don't think about the fact that um, you know it's a farm owned by somebody, and they may be causing a damage to the actual plants, and and they need to consider that. Um, my next guest is uh, Ian Baird. He's the owner of Terra Blue Lavender Farm in Milton, and he joins me on the line. Hi, Ian. Hi, Jamie. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Um, you know, this isn't a case of uh, of you guys being the crabby old man who says, get off my lawn. Um, I, from what I can understand, from what I've read, you're okay with people getting in there and taking some photographs. You just want them to be careful, right? 100%. We've actually uh, made our farm accessible as an agro-tourism destination, and we welcome visitors uh, all summer long. <clears throat> the challenge is that in the quest for the perfect selfie, as you mentioned at your intro, a lot of people forget that this is a working farm and that our beautiful colored plants are actually our crop, no different than an apple orchard or cornfield. And so when people get excited to go take their picture, they start jumping over the plants, but uh, their jumps aren't as good as they expected, and they land on top of the plants, crushing the plants. They step on the plants. They lie in the plants to take a picture. And then we can't harvest the flower, and we can't make the beautiful lavender products that we make with them. Right, and I suppose, uh, you know, when you're getting uh, dozens of, of people. I don't know how many people you get through there. How many people would be coming through typically at this time of year? About 80,000 people. Oh, wow. Okay. I said dozens, <laughs> 80,000. Well, I can see why it would become a, a concern, uh, a business concern to you. when there's that many people <laughs> coming through. How, how do you police it? So to speak? Well, that's a great, um, expression. I, I don't know that we want to say we police the fields, except that we do need to manage and protect the crop very well. There's been other instances of farms all around the world that have had their crops destroyed by overly excited uh, photography seekers. And so in our case, we employ about 50 staff every summer. Their work as ambassadors to help people understand uh, how we grow lavender and how we make the products we do, and they offer guided tours, but they also play a big role in making sure people step carefully in the plants and not crush the plants. We also have to hire police, um, actual municipal police, to help with safety and security and the movement of people. We have uh, staff on horseback to try and cover our 160 acres of, of various crops. And so there's a variety of ways, including fencing and cameras and, and all sorts of things to be able to manage it in a responsible way so that we don't end up like some other farms have had their entire farm destroyed. Do people respond well when you, you know, politely educate them uh, or do, do you get, you know, people getting their backs up? Uh, I would say 80%, 85% of the people are totally understanding. They understand that we're a organic farm and this is our crop and that it doesn't all bloom at the same time. And they're keen to learn how the farm 
operates and grows, but at the same time, there is a small percentage that get very indignant with us if we ask them not to step on the flowers or to not crush another path into flowers that weren't paths to begin with, but wow. they have been crushed. Wow. And what what do we have for an age uh, group, uh, the most indignant ones? Because I'm busy dumping on millennials this week. Are they millennials or are they older folks like me? Uh, you know what? I, I don't know how old you are, but uh, it crosses all spectrum. I would not put it on millennials alone at all. Okay, uh, so rudeness uh, knows no uh, age limits in this case. No, and it's it's very unfortunate. Sometimes the rudeness is really over the top and completely uncalled for, and uh, and people are very judgmental if we're asking people to be careful of the plants. Well, I have to tell you something, Ian. I think your approach to this whole thing is fantastic, and and I think you're you know you're making. You're, you're really, I think, doing a great job of, of setting up a system there where people can come in and enjoy the lavender, enjoy the farm, learn about it, and uh, take their selfies and not leave your farm destroyed. I mean, a lot of people would just shut the doors and put up big, uh, you know, electric fences and, and say, keep out. Um, I, I think you're to be applauded for trying to make this work. And uh, I think that's wonderful. Congrats on that. Thanks very much. And a lot of customers actually and visitors to the farm say that very same thing. They say, thank you for opening the farm. We can see the challenge that it is. And it is stressful at times. It is our home as well, a farm. We live on the farm and it's it's challenging at times. But we do love educating the public about sustainable agriculture and lavender products. And we do think that they can connect with nature and still get that perfect selfie without destroying it. Terrific. Ian Barrett, owner of uh, Terra Blue Lavender Farm in Milton. Thanks for uh, being with us here this afternoon. Appreciate it, and good good luck. Thanks, Jamie, and thanks for your interest. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ian Barrett, there you go. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.